Welcome to the 12th Academy Awards, and here are the stars. There's Jimmy Stewart from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Larry Olivier from Wuthering Heights, and his blushing bride, Vivian Leigh, from this year's Gone with the Wind. And here, as always, are your hosts for the evening, Brett Doze, and the one and only Christian Ramos. And special guest... We're getting to that. You have to make it great. <laughs> you have to make it grand. Okay, true, true. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is my radio voice circa 1939. I don't have one of those, so. Sad. Well done. Hello. Yeah, um, thank you for that wonderful intro. Welcome to the 12th Academy Awards. We traveled back. We've brought a friend along with us, everybody. Welcome, Zay. Hello, everyone. I've mentioned Zay like every single podcast, and this is this is this is the moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one person that's been listening from the very beginning. Yes, every single episode. Read everybody else in that statement. <laughs> there, our biggest supporter. So really excited, um, not just to have Zay aboard, but also because this is, I would say, probably our biggest episode yet. It's Christian Mission. We're covering the year 1939, commonly perceived as the greatest year in the history of cinema. We can decide if that's the case or not, possibly. But yeah, our first episode covering more than five nominees. We've got 10 films that were nominated for Best Picture that we got to cover. And then we also have quite a few more released that year. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and yeah. Looking forward to it. So I think we'll start out looking at the year 1939. We always like to cover a little bit about what happened that year. I remember it well. I remember it quite well. I was there. What happened? What happened while you were there? Well, I remember back on September 1st, 1939, when the war began. World War II, to be exact, Germany invaded Poland. Yeah. Yeah. That's about as fun fact as I can go on that. Pretty big of it, I would say. I mean, and then we got into the war like what, a year later? Yeah, late 1941. So about a couple years. And then something famous, um, kind of go with Brett, because Brett likes baseball a lot. Lou Gehrig, he retires from the, I oh my God, baseball. Why did I almost say NBA? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he retires from baseball because he's diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, very famous speech he gave. If, if Can you quote it? Uh, some, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Thank you, Gary Cooper. Yes, I was waiting for that reference. That's perfect. Uh, also, Mickey Rooney is the number one box office star. Or rather, I think just like the number one star back in the day, it was like their version of People's Sexiest magazine. It's like the number one star. Who is it? Mickey Rooney. Why? Who the hell knows? Who's the Blake Shelton of that year? He's the. Did you just say Blake Shelton? Yeah, remember when he was Sexiest Man like two years ago? Ew, and everyone controversial. Had a Ew. <laughs> Pretty sure. Well, Mickey Rooney and, then, and Blake Shelton are on the same level for me, I think. God. <laughs> and there goes Rooney's legacy. <laughs> oh, he ruined that on his own, I think. Oh, yeah. I saw him on. He was on. He was on an episode of Full House that I watched. He's the other a creep. Day. I mean, he was, but 
Anyway, kids, <laughs> another big thing we have is that the Great Depression, sad, is in its 10th and final year. Woohoo. Because why did we really go to war? Oh, did I say that? Yikes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a lot going on. I mean, this is a little different than the last episode. The last episode, we were able to like talk about all these great songs that we knew that came out. I mean, the only songs I know that came out in 1939 are the ones from like Wizard of Oz and the Wizard you know, of Oz. And so we'll get to those. But yeah, um, I think a lot happening that year, but especially the Oscars in general. Big year. Um, Bob Hope being the host for the very first time. He's probably like the most legendary host, um, you know, Bob Hope, Billy Crystal, Whoopi Goldberg. He's right there with that crew and 19 different times he hosted the ceremony. This is amazing. Yeah. Like to consider that he was hosting in the 70s and this is the 30s. Well, this 1940, this took place, but still that's they love the man. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, obviously, we don't have clips or anything that we can watch. This is the first time we've had that as well. So I don't know what he was like. I'm sure he's very charismatic, but pretty cool. Um, we had Gone with the Wind. It was its big year. 13 nominations as a leader. Mr. Smith goes to Washington was second with 11. Gone with the Wind led with eight wins. Um, but I was kind of interested to read, you know, looking back now, we see like these enduring performances like um, Vivian Lee and also, you know, um, um, Victor Fleming as the director of Gone with the Wind. They were not like sweeping it up. Um, a lot of people in contention, at least that people considered like Frank Capra and Betty Davis, which we'll get to as well. And so a little more competitive than I thought it was. When you wrote that on the notes that they weren't like, really front runners they were i mean they were still you know in competition that was actually kind of surprising yeah and i saw I, that today and i try to find like articles from la times or new york times at saying like who their predictions were and i couldn't find anything but that's like actually kind of interesting now in retrospect well now that you're mentioning those articles why don't you bring up what you found today because i think that's really interesting Ooh, ooh! if i can find it okay so, uh, back in the day, the Oscars actually used to announce to the press who the winners were. Is that what we're talking about, first of all? Yes, yes. That's what I sent you, yeah. So, they used to announce to the press who were the winners, and the press would know before they would actually announce on stage. But then, it actually got leaked uh, at this Oscars who won, because they ran it in their evening uh, edition of the Los Angeles Times, that's back when newspapers had an evening edition. And so the winners effectively knew that they had won. And because of that, the year after, they started not releasing it at all, which is why we have like the secret ballots and how everything is a surprise nowadays. Yeah, that's really interesting to me to know. I can just imagine being like, when does the excitement hit? Is it like when you find out? Probably, but like when you're sitting there, you know you're going to give the speech. No shocked reactions this time around. Yeah, because every I mean, I've seen clips of like Vivian Lee winning and Hattie McDaniel winning, and though they're kind of like joyed and surprised, they're not Olivia Coleman winning surprised. Mm. 
Like they're not freaking out or anything. It's just like, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. In Hattie McDaniel's case, I mean, she was crying, but you know. Yeah, that's awesome, though. Um, I mean, cool bit of history. But yeah, um, pretty, I would say more competitive year than I imagined. Um, the interesting, the New York Film Critics Circle, which was already giving film awards out this time, they had such a hard time deciding between Gone with the Wind and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that they were just like, okay, let's give it to Wuthering Heights instead. They like had all these rounds of like voting, and they're like, yeah, let's go with the Lawrence Olivier movie. The boring Lawrence Olivier the, movie. The third obvious choice. <laughs> of course. But no, I mean, it seems like Gone with the Wind and Mr. Smith were kind of the two big ones, at least at the ceremony. Um, we'll get into like how some of these films were received at the time a little bit. Um, yeah, some honorary awards thrown in for Judy Garland, of course. Um, some special awards for Gone with the Wind. And also the first year for visual effects with a surprise winner we'll also get to and yeah anything else that stuck out to either of you about the oscars in general this year it was pretty much just a juggernaut for gone with the wind and it's interesting that they gave the irving g thalberg award to david o selznick who then i guess went on to win for the best picture so man won the man won the night really yeah, and I didn't realize like at the time he was running his own like production company. Um, I mean, I, I'm not gonna lie, I got this from listening to You Must Remember This, the great podcast. But yeah, like MGM kind of had this deal and got the full rights later on and blah blah blah. And so, yeah, big year for him. Okay, so without further ado, if you oh, go ahead, yeah, um. I was just shook when I saw all the nominees. Like, how many nominees there were per category? Like, Best Score alone has 13 nominees. Oh. And I was like, they were just throwing shit in. They were like, oh, this got music? Well, <laughs> just it in. <laughs> literally, just wait till you get to the 1940s when the song categories had like 10 nominees per song category because there were so many more movie musicals than there are today. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point, though, because I don't know. I, I don't know enough about my Oscar history with those categories, but like score and, you know, music, things like that. Were those loaded like that before this? Because this is like 12 years after the advent of sound. It's not like it's something new. So I mean, it's been around for a while. I know. I guess maybe they're just, you know, the rules they had for those categories. But yeah, best original score is loaded. Best sound recording is loaded. Special effects is too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm looking back and a few it's been going on like this for a while. Cinematography black and white, which also was the first year that they had to split the category of cinematography. It's literally every black and white movie that exists got a nomination. Like congratulations to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, best art direction has a ton. It's a good point. Like it's interesting because like it's it's spread out between these like technical categories. Like you've still got five and all the acting, the screenplays, best director still has five. And that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Anything else before we jump into the nominees? I'm ready. Yeah, okay. let's go. Okay. 
first up on the list, alphabetical order, the Betty Davis starring vehicle, Dark Victory. Who would like to tell us a synopsis? I can go for it. Nose goes. <laughs> <laughs> so Dark Victory. Um, basically, basically the story of this, this socialite um, played by Betty Davis, obviously, who um, you know, kind of lives this fun life, I would say, um, until she's diagnosed with this brain tumor. Basically, she finds out there's this doctor that becomes her love interest. He goes in and says, I can cure it. Let's do it. She goes through the surgery, wakes up. He tells her it's all good. Come to find out it's not all good. Um, the brain tumor is inoperable. They have it checked out by all these doctors. And the movie kind of follows that narrative. And, you know, whether she finds out about this and how she confronts it, you know, if that's the case. Um, and really, I think just a true great showing for Betty Davis as a performer. Actually, when I saw this, it was weird to me that this is one of my favorites of her performances. I've seen a lot of her. I mean, obviously, All About Eve is great, and Baby Jane is great. And then this is, like, also pretty great. And this is coming a year after she won for Jezebel, which I don't like that movie. Oh. I don't like that performance. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely agree. Like, going in, I was like, I don't know if I like anything other than Betty Davis. There was other good parts of it. But I was like, I'm here for the queen. And I'm just, she surely just shocked me with how good the performance, not shocked because she's always good, but like definitely one of the best performances from her I've seen. Was anybody there for Ronald Reagan? Oh, uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very, very, very surprising that he was in this because it was I like, and Ronald Reagan. And I was like, oh God, okay, we can get through this. Yeah. Another person who's in this is Geraldine Fitzgerald, yes. who, like many, many people in this year, as Brett and I have talked about, had like multiple movies come out and like actually really good roles for her, too. Yes. I, I didn't realize I knew who she was. She was in The Golden Girls twice. Yes. She was the woman who wanted to kill herself. Yes. And then she's the lady that spends uh, Mother's Day with Rose. <gasps> That's right. Mm. Is also in Poltergeist Guys too. Golden Girls reference, but no, she was uh, she's Betty Davis's friend in this film, and she's also in Weathering Heights. Which we'll get to, but I really liked her in this a lot more. Same. She's a very charismatic, sympathetic friend to Betty. She keeps the secret that she's dying. I mean, what friend would do that? It's a bad move, I think, but whatever. Yeah, I I really had to like wrap my head around like the idea of like there. She's dying, and they're not saying anything. It's like this big secret between the doctor and her friend, and the doctor like falls in love with her. Oh my god! Yeah, it's weird. It's just like, <laughs> it makes me feel weird watching that. That's a malpractice suit waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's some, like, that's some soap opera shit right there. You know what it reminds me of though? Like these, ever since the Fault in Our Stars came out, these like sick teen movies that come out every year. It's kind of what it reminded me of. Like, this person is sick and it's romanticized the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. And she literally falls in love with the doctor who lied to her about. I mean, shit. The first, the first inkling that she should have known something was up was during the like 
when he's testing her, she's closing her eyes and he's like, what is this? It's a pencil. What is this? That's a rubber band. <laughs> it's like, girl, it's Oprah. You can like clearly tell that maybe that isn't a rubber band or whatever the fuck it was. He's gaslighting her through this. It's like he doesn't want to tell her she's going to die, but watch till she gets to her deathbed. Yeah, and maybe that's why you'll be okay. Yeah, and I I agree, Zay. Like, if if Betty Davis does not give a good performance in this, I don't know if I like the movie. See, I also wrote that note. I was like, if Betty Davis wasn't the star, I don't think this would have been considered one of the best of the year. Yeah, I, I think so. And I... Because it's also like, I mean, I get like we're supposed to maybe sympathize with her more than the others, but she's like the only one that I can really empathize with, sympathize with. And I don't know. I mean, it is what it is that we see that a lot. I mean, her being the star of the show and really delivers on it, which is good for what it is. But yeah, without her, it's going to fall flat. You have written down here on our notes of this film that it is has won. It didn't win any of the nominations that it was nominated for, picture, actress, and original score. But over time, it won for AFI, American Film Institute. It's number 32 on The Greatest Passions. Oh, boy. Weird, as, as we're talking <laughs> about the romance in, in this. And then it also won for number 72, The Greatest Cheers. Which is like, I think it's like inspirational movies. Oh, girl, you're going blind. <laughs> it's like be inspired. And I get like part of the plot is that like, spoiler alert, it's been 80 years. Like, I think that's you had your chance. But I mean, she does find out. And really, that was a really good scene. I thought when she's like listening to the song and like you see this look on her face like, oh, my God. Um, But she figures out kind of upset accepts it and just like agrees to do what she wants and like live her life. But inspirational, I, it didn't hit me in that way when I inspirational that she probably has to like find her way around Helen Keller style in a like couple months. (laughs) It's inspiring the way just be thankful. This isn't happening to you. (laughs) Guess so. (laughs) It's, I mean, I've read things where, again, this is Hollywood's quote-unquote greatest year of Oscar nominations, and it's a variety of genres. So this one, I guess, is the romance-slash-dramatic-slash-inspiring drama? Yeah. It crosses into a variety of categories here. Yeah. I don't think I would have personally nominated it, but I wasn't in the 30s. I enjoyed it just because I love a good melodrama. But in the same vein, I'm like, I love a good melodrama. Do I think it makes it a great film? I don't know. But I still enjoyed watching it because of the melodrama. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I enjoyed the character interactions and um, the performance, obviously. And it was kind of funny watching Humphrey Bogart in this movie. That was kind of a a strange role for him. But it's like one of its early roles, too. Yeah. And him so, and Betty were him and Betty were like pretty good friends too. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Dark victory. Anything else there? I can. Can we spoil the ending? Oh yeah, go for it. Yeah, she go, go, she, it. she go blind. That's it. She's going blind. It like fades out to. You're supposed to believe that you're watching from her point of view, and it's getting all hazy and 
Surprise. You're basically that was her watching, dark victory. You're watching her extremely beautiful and romanticized death as she lays on her deathbed, basically. So that's how we should all go. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right. Anything else? Cool. So kind of interesting that these two come together because I think there are some parallels here. We're moving on to another character study, character-driven film. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Anybody want to give us the plot for this one? Zay, you do it because you have a story about how you saw this. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not good at summaries, but I'll do my best. Um, goodbye, Mr. Chips. It first takes place in whatever year. And we see an old Mr. Chips. He doesn't show up to his, um, what is the coronation? It's not a coronation. It's like his retirement, pretty much. Basically. And they, no, no, it's like the first day of classes or whatever. And he doesn't show up for the first time in like 50 years. He's like an 80-year-old man. And then it flashes back to 1870 when he's a new um, professor at this boys' school. And basically it shows how he grows as a teacher. And at first he's really nervous, then becomes a hard ass. And then he meets the gorgeous Greer Garson. And she's on screen for 20 minutes, changes his life. She dies in childbirth. Spoiler and alert. Whatever. It's an 80-year-old movie. <laughs> and then he changes his life, becomes a great professor. And then World War One happens. A lot of the dies. students die. True. And then he dies. He he literally goodbye <laughs> the chips. So, long story short for me, I watched the wrong one first. Oh. I watched the, the one from 1969. The Peter O'Toole one. The Peter O'Toole one. And I like yeah. that one more. It isn't that a, isn't that yeah it was a musical and this is not a musical i don't remember the actress in that one but she is in it longer they also fridge her but at least she got more than 20 minutes yeah no it's funny that that's your story because i almost had the same thing happen i like put it on hold at my library went to pick it up looked at the case and i was like peter o'toole was in this same. Like, no. I didn't even know he was alive. It's and I was the like, only copy they had in my library. And I was like, oh, Peter O'Toole. Fine. He's probably pretty young in this. And then I put it in. And I'm like, the cinematography is really good for 1939. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I will say though that that version does sound more intriguing than the one we watched. I will you say. You thought that Peter O'Toole would be young. Yes. Seven-year-old Peter <laughs> O'Toole. I didn't look it up. Giving that Oscar-winning performance. You know, I could see it because... Oh, yeah. I could see it because in 1968, as we've talked about, he was in Lion in Winter playing, like, a 50-year-old character. So, I mean, I could see the parallels there. It's true. That's funny. So, this movie we have is was the number seven at the box office. Wow. 3.25 million at the time. Um, it won one award. Best Actor. Robert Donat, discuss. 
I mean, he's fine. I could, I could honestly see why they'd give it to him. It, this is, it's like really an early example. There's another one too, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. That the Academy is really like these British performances. I could also see it as a split vote. Like between That's true Jimmy too. Stewart and Clark Gable. And it ended up with Robert. That's true yeah. too. Don't you have something on this, Brett? I, I think it's an early example of how much the Academy loves their transformations. Um, because we see him as a young guy transforms into this old guy plays it all the way through i mean we we see we saw it this year with rami malik i mean ugh. but <laughs> he became freddie mercury and i get this is not a biopic but i i see both other points as well i do agree i think it was probably splitting some votes between the other major actors and also loving their british actors i think all of that combines into a win for robert dodat yeah. Yeah, I, I think he's good. I I would have pro I would have maybe nominated him. I think I have him listed, but it's super close. I mean, I'm cool with the nomination. The win. I think we'll get to some better examples. Yeah. I think what changed my idea for him though is when I saw Peter O'Toole play the same thing. And he's Peter O'Toole. And he does it so much better. Mm, that's fair. But yeah, uh, I want to go get back on the Greer Garson thing <laughs> because the 20 minutes that she's in the film is by far the best part of the movie. Okay, but this is so good because she was on contract with whoever the studio was. I didn't remember. I think it might be MGM. And they kept trying to throw roles at her. She's like, no, I don't want that role. It's too small. I don't want that role. It's too small. And then this came along. She's like, that's the role I want. And they all 20 and, minutes of it, and, but she fought for it, and then she got the a, the best actress nomination. This is her debut role, yeah. I mean, hey, when you make it, when you make an impression, you make an impression. And Greer Garson will do that. I fucking love Greer Garson, yeah. She's great, I love her in the role. I mean, and that's she's who not... I'm most excited for in this movie, and then she's here for 20 minutes, yeah. She's kind of just here and gone, and Early example of category fraud, obviously. Because, I mean, this movie's freaking long. And so, at least, like, I don't know, two hours and ten minutes or something. I mean, it feels much longer than that for me. But <laughs> I was clearly not a fan of this. Um, I had seen it before. And I'm trying to watch all these Best Actor winners. So I obviously had to watch this. But I don't know. It was something about the uplifting teacher thing that gets to me sometimes. But at the same time, I don't care enough. And I think this time, because everybody was focusing on Greer Garson, I was like looking for her and she came along and then she croaks. And <laughs> again, she is the best part of this movie. See, and what I like better in the remake is, I forgot the actress's name again. She was, she was fine. She's no Greer Garson, but she was fine. She got a whole like hour out of the whole movie. Yeah. And song and dance. Song and dance. Who directed this? Sam Wood, because it says he got a nomination for those too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I my thoughts on this have just shifted so much. I as I was watching it, I was like, okay, this is I'm not gonna lie, this is kind of dull. And then mm -hmm. I finished it, and I was like, I, I really like this like character evolution, his teaching styles, how that changes and whatnot. So I thought I liked it more, and then I as a few days and then we went by i was like 
it's it's not that to me. My problem is I didn't find him an interesting character. I didn't think they fleshed him out enough. I just think his character was teacher. Yeah, and that's what got me. To, at first, I'm like, oh yeah, I went through all these changes. But I'm like, but they're so like superficial. Mm-hmm. Like, like you said, he's the hard ass, and then he's that's- the compassionate guy. What got me the most was during the bombing scene. And I like, okay, you want to make it so the kids aren't scared, but y'all dumb as hell. Get out of there. <laughs> Things are falling. You're going to kill your kids. This isn't a good teacher. There were some scenes like that just felt kind of, I don't know. I mean, I get why that one was there, but I don't get why it was that way. And then I don't even really understand why it was there was the one where He's supposedly this nice guy now, and he's become the headmaster during the war because he's too old to go fight. Mm-hmm. And the student comes in, and he just canes the shit out of him. And I'm like, you're supposed to be this compassionate guy, and you're caning this guy just because he said that he's upset because I, I don't agree with the kid, obviously, but mm-hmm. that scene just felt really weird to me at that point in the movie. If it had happened earlier... Maybe it made sense with the character, but I don't know. The kid in this movie who plays like his every single generation I version of him. I just, like that. <laughs> it, it was it was very different, but it was good. <laughs> I just want to say that his name is Terry Kilburn, and the boy now man is still alive. Wow. That's he cool. Is not, he is 92 years young. Yeah, I mean, this I can't remember what how many years this movie spans, like 60 some odd years or something like that and so yeah. you see all these generations of kids come through and the 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 ending line is kind of funny what does he say is something like he hears them talking about it's so upsetting that he didn't have any children because Greg Garson died during childbirth as did the baby mm-hmm. and he's like i had thousands of them all boys <laughs> Da, 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 da. I mean, that, and, like it was like a nice little bow at the top, but I'm just like, you open the present, that's what you get. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I feel that. Another interesting thing about the timeline thing in relation to the remake is it ends in like 1920-ish or whatever, where that's when he dies or whatever. Um, That's when he, in the remake, that's when he starts his career. And then ends it like around 1969 or whatever. And then in that one, his wife dies while entertaining the troops in World War II. Ooh. Instead of childbirth. Dark. Entertaining <laughs> 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 the troops. Yeah, because in that version, she's a like a senior dance or whatever. I don't know why that's funnier than dying in childbirth. <laughs> It's like, all right, boys, let's do this. And then croaks. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. Like, it was like a bomb. They were bombed while she was. Oh, okay. <laughs> now oh, I see. Like you have can... an aneurysm on stage or something. The moral of this story is when we get to 1969, we are watching Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Well, no, I'm glad to hear all this because I had no interest in watching it after sitting on this one for a while but now i, I actually kind of enjoyed it that's good um yeah the one win for robert donat six nominations for best picture director for sam wood actress for gear garson as we mentioned uh screenplay film editing and sound recording 
and the AFI, American Film Institute, ranked Mr. Chipping as the 41st greatest film hero of all time. Of course, because he did so, so much. So much. It's because he's a teacher. He was ranked above Karen Silkwood. That made me mad. Yeah, I don't know if I would include him on that list. I mean, I'm all for, like, great teachers, but he didn't leave much of an impression on me, so... Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Perfect. Okay. Next film on our list is... Okay, this is the one that I knew absolutely nothing about. Love Affair. Shall I Christian, go? do you want to give us... Shall yeah, I yeah, do it? it? All right, let me get these names here. Michel Manon, Charles Boyer, and Terry McKay, Irene Dunn. They meet aboard an ocean cruise liner, and they fall in love. However, they are both engaged. Scandalous. Uh, so anyway, these two go on this boat, obviously, and they travel to meet Michelle's grandmother, Maria Osimpiskaya. Same. I butchered that. <laughs> and again, with the loving and the falling in love, it's a very short movie. There's not much to it. But they decide to meet again in like six months atop the Empire State Building. Um, if they really truly love each other and if they both meet up top, they will get engaged and they will get married. Something happens. Should I say what happens? Might as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, she gets hit by a car and she's like permanently paralyzed. So that six months comes around. She doesn't find herself atop the Empire State Building, but he does. He's looking for her. Nothing happens. He thinks huh, maybe she didn't love me. And then he comes to find out what happened. She sees him with another woman. He sees her with another man, but then they meet up and love ensues. Have you heard of it before? 87 minutes of love. <laughs> One could even say that this is an affair to remember. Hmm. Even that affair wasn't much to remember. Yikes. Obviously, I mean, Sleepless in Seattle is the one that comes to mind for me. Let's Which all I raise enjoyed. our let's all raise our pink champagne glasses. <laughs> but no, this is I mean, this is fine. Um, there's a couple of movies this year that we have that are these romance. I mean, I think this is one of the biggest romance. I mean, other than Gone with the Wind and Nanachka, really. But uh, I don't know. It was fine. It was really quick. 87 minutes long. Mm hmm. And for this to get a Best Picture nominee, it's kind of like maybe it was a popularity thing. I don't really know how popular it was, but there's not really that much substance to it for me. I mean, the plot, like I was describing the plot, how simple it is. They fall in love. They shouldn't be in love, but they're in love. Love. You missed one important detail, though. The singing orphans. <laughs> You know what? Yes, there are singing orphans that today I went back and I said, what is that song wishing? Because I do not remember it. And sure enough, nominated for original song, the song wishing is sung by singing orphans. You know, though, these orphans are a lot better singers than the ones that are unfair to remember because those are atrocious. So these are better that. orphans. Yeah, those orphans. I, mm, I, I didn't like this. I... I mean, I didn't dis, I wasn't hate or anything, but I, like you said, the plot, they're there, they fall in love. Like that was, for me, it was just like, it happens. And it was, this over. is a, mo this is a movie. 
competing against films. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cute. I think it's like really fluff though. Like I could see it like, I wouldn't be mad that this would be like, I don't know, the pretty woman or the runaway bride of the year. But mm. to make it part of like the top 10 films of the year decided by the Academy, not so much. And Granted, we got, six, we got six nominees too. True. I mean, you wouldn't see like a romantic comedy getting that today though. Like Crazy mm -hmm. Rotation's got nothing. Should have got a costume, but that's another discussion. But the fact that I didn't get that. But they gave I, all to something like this in this third 1939 is interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Um, for me, it's just it's the most forgettable, probably, of all the nominees, or one of the most forgettable. And I couldn't get into the performances most of the time, or the characters for that matter. I mean, um blanking. Irene Dunn. I, Irene Dunn. Yeah. She there were there are definitely moments where I thought she was really good. Um, she did get a nomination. I disagree. So didn't think she was very good. Well, no, 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 not with just her. But I really did think Maria Olspensiaka was great. She was like the highlight of the film for me. And she has yeah. one scene. Right. Yeah, it should have been just her. It should have been her running the show. Yeah, I mean the the thing about Irene Dunn was that she has that scene um, with Maria Ospenskaya, whatever her name is, um, and that's it. Seems to me like that's supposed to be like their big scene because it really closes in on her face a lot. And I I couldn't read her emotions in that scene. I it just kind of I didn't feel anything there. Mm -hmm. And um, the lead actor Charles Boyer. Mm -hmm. Didn't get much out of him either. Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, I think that the An Affair to Remember, its remake is a lot more memorable than this. But even that more, like you brought up Sleepless in Seattle. It's a lot more memorable. And this is what, two times in a row now that the remake has been better than the original. I disagree. Because I never liked An Affair to Remember. And I, I don't, don't remember An Affair to Remember, so... <laughs> I remember coming out of an affair to remember to be like, why is this considered to be as like, it's not like iconic, iconic, but it's like one of those like old Hollywood movies where people talk about, it's probably due to the sleepless, sleepless in Seattle at this point. But mm -hmm. I don't know. See, my big idea was I liked Irene Dunn in this. I liked Deborah Kerr in an affair to remember. It should have just been them together. Nice little lesbian love affair. That's the movie I wanted. We are how many minutes into this and enter the lesbians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't have much more to say on it. I, it's there. It's quick and it's done. It the is ending, in the public domain. It is. What do you guys think of the ending? Um, like, we have this big scene where they're talking back and forth, and he realizes what has happened. I don't know why she keeps it from him. Just like flat out say, hey, I got hit by a truck. Honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's not that hard. Maybe he'll, I mean, he's going to see her anyway eventually. And she'll be, hey, I got hit by a truck. Oh, okay. You want to hang out? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Maybe. Go for it. 
Oh, I was thinking, we're probably going to mention it in a little bit, but it reminded me the um, private life of Elizabeth and Essex, where something very similar in that happens, where they didn't get each other's letters, and then they thought they stopped loving each other. So I'm like, was there something in 1939 where couples just had a lot of bad communication issues? I mean, uh, another example is Gone with the Wind. Again, we'll get to that. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, um, I don't know. That last scene, I maybe I was just inattentive, but I just blanked out on what they were saying until he like realized. I was like, it's about damn time. Like, <laughs> kiss and let's get the title screen up. But, but like you said, I think it is the least memorable of the 10 nominees this year. Yeah, um, I mean, it, like you said, it did do well. Um, six noms for picture actress for Irene Dunn, supporting actress for Maria Alspinskaya, original story, art direction, and original song, as you mentioned, for Wishing. Pretty good haul. Mm-hmm. So they liked it, but... That would be like, I think Love Affair, if we compare it to the Oscars of this year, it's the vice of that year. Like, we're gonna mm. look back like, why did that get so many nominations? Granted, I like this movie a lot more than I did Vice, but that's how it feels like. Yo, <laughs> and didn't win many either. Got all these nominations and didn't really. Thank God. Show up on Oscars night, so that was love affair. Love affair. Awesome. So we got a big one coming up here. Let me introduce this one because I got a good thing for it. Go for it. Okay, and now with the introduction to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the all-American Jimmy Stewart lookalike contest winner, Brett Doze. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what to say. I, I you know. I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's all I that, got. That was folks, a... folks, the ghost of Jimmy Stewart just <laughs> Is anybody here? <laughs> Oh my god, that was actually really good. <laughs> I wasn't planning on pulling that out, but and now here's Zay with their Henry Fonda impersonation. <laughs> Nothing. Henry Fonda. Uh, so that was pretty good. Well, Henry oh. was described as a, a quiet type. <laughs> anyway, here's Brett with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh yeah, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, begins with the death of a U.S. senator. And basically the governor gets to decide who will take the senator's place. He has basically the mob on one side. I don't know if they're the mob. They're like the corrupt folks on one side saying, go for this guy. He'll do whatever we want. And then he's got um, Jimmy Stewart's character, Mr. Smith, Jefferson Smith. Um I think the most American name they could think of probably, or, you know, stereotypical American name at that time. And he's like this guy that works with, um, what is it? The boy Rangers. Is that what they're mm-hmm. called? They're not the boy scouts. Cause I couldn't use the boy scouts name. They're pretty much the same thing. Pretty much the same thing. Um, all the kids love him. He's this seemingly nice guy, a little naive, a lot naive at times. Um, and basically that's who he decides after a crazy coin flip. And so he goes to Washington, as the title suggests. He is under the tutelage of the senior senator from his state, um, who is a friend of his father, and basically discovers 
as he's pushing forward this act for this boys camp, all the corruption, I shouldn't say all the corruption, but a major form of corruption happening in Washington and kind of blows his mind. He's like, I've got to fix this. And so I'll say it, he gives this huge, long filibuster, um, Amy Poehler style and kind of succeeds. Um, inspirational. I would, you know, I think that's what Insp they're going for here. Inspirational as heck. Yeah. And so really good. Jimmy Stewart performance, iconic. Um, and the filibuster sing also iconic. And yeah, that's Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's very ideal for the time. 1939 and it's very ideal for today which is nice because we need more we need more mr smiths in washington true i would like to add um brett thank you for recognizing our great politician amy poehler mm -hmm. no problem oh yeah zay's from indiana and in fact zay's from pawnee yes there we go interacts with amy on the daily <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um it is, I don't know, I've always thought about, like, government corruption and, like, mistrust in the government. I think a lot of times it's perpetuated as this thing that happened after Watergate. Mm -hmm. And this is shows, like, no, no, it's it's been around. It's pretty much been around for, like, since government. <laughs> yeah. And I know, like, I was reading and listening and, like, that a lot of, they were afraid to like distribute this overseas and a lot of people even afraid to make it at all um, because they're afraid, you know, the enemies are going to see this and realize how corrupt we are and how weak our system is. And um, obviously the politicians all hated it. I think Harry Truman gave it a scathing review, but really beloved by critics and audiences. Number, Number two, two box office here. So yeah, 9.6 million. That's a lot. Yeah. For that time, that's a ton. That's a haul. So. And a good amount of Oscar nominations, 11 in total. One for original story, um, picture director for Frank Capra, actor for James Stewart, screenplay supporting actor for Claude Rains and Harry Carey, which I like Harry Carey in this a lot. Mm -hmm. Like I always get confused at who he, like who he is, but it's just like the guy up there making sure everybody's in order. Um, art direction, film editing, scoring, and sound recording. But no, a good slew of people. And Jean Arthur. Hello, Jean oh. Arthur. She's really good in this. She, I love. I literally discovered that I love her in everything I've seen. Yeah, I agree. I loved Jean Arthur in this movie. Um, and she's she's her character and both her. They're the star of the show. Mm -hmm. It's really her character that like gives Mr. Smith all these ideas and whatnot. And of course doesn't get the stage herself like she deserves, but she got top billing. Did she really? Mm -hmm. I did not notice that. That's awesome. I think she was more established too at the time than True. James was. I think I heard a story that she was wary of working with Stewart because he was still like up and coming and she wasn't sure about like if she, if he was going to like be up to her standards. Yeah. I mean, um, Jimmy Stewart was in the year before this. Um, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. The Oscar best picture win. But other than that, I can't think of anything else that he was in. At least notable 
up to this point. And of course he takes off after this, obviously he goes to war for a while, but huge star after that. He's perfect for this role though. Mm -hmm. Like talk about an all American guy in like the all American role. And I know we were talked about, he is, I think Zay, you brought up the fact that maybe Robert Donats was a split between Stewart and Gable. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I would have went with Stewart just because at the time period we have the Great Depression's ending, FDR is in power, FDR is doing a lot of this good stuff for America. And then you have this little, little, I will say, optimistic Mr. Smith who goes to Washington and who makes like the biggest impact that they have ever seen. Any of these old crusty white men, not to be confused with the old crusty white men in Congress now, but <laughs> the ones of the 30s. Yeah, I, I there's no one office. The ones back then, they just. Yeah, um, I think I also would have gone with Jimmy Stewart uh, because I just I found his performance more memorable and so much energy, and the filibuster scene is just like, wow. And also, I think for a lot of Gone with the Winds, Clark Gable is playing Car- Clark Gable. You know, like. He was the star of that time. It was Jimmy Stewart playing Jimmy Stewart too, but yeah, I know this one sticks out for me. I like in the filibuster scene how you just see him get more and more manic. Like they established that, um, like physically with like his facial hair and like his actual hair, just like getting all messed up. But you can hear it in his voice. You can hear that he's getting desperate as the time goes on, right? Because it's it's like the second he can take it, he sits down or takes the break. He's done. That's it. Yeah, the thing I found interesting about the filibuster scene was uh, the um, the scenes where they're like trying to get the word out, and they have all the boy rangers going out and like getting seriously injured trying to spread the word about what he's doing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this got dark. They're like, you need to stop it. People are getting hurt. People are getting killed. And he's like, well, gosh, I guess I will. <laughs> Actually, he didn't develop that voice that I just did until after the war, but whatever. It's how we know him. Yeah. Um, we talked about, obviously, Stuart, Gene Arthur. Um, I really liked Claude Rains in this. I thought mm-hmm. he was just, he just perfectly played that, like, that guy that he seems to Jimmy story seems like it's not guy, but you know, something's up with him, you know, he's corrupt in some way. And then it gets revealed and like their dichotomy, especially in the filibuster scene, really enjoyed those performances and just how they work together. Chemistry is all around here. I think it's just awesome. That's the sign of a good Capra picture. It is. I like Frank Capra a lot. I mean, again, with the all American stuff, he already won a few times before this, notably for like uh, it happened one night. Then he'd go on to work with Jimmy again in a beautiful little picture we call it's a wonderful life. Getting it emotional. Been the Oscar, but right for another day. But uh, let's see what this also won in history. AFI is number twenty six best one hundred movies. That was last updated in two thousand seven. I mean, I'm sure it would still be there. Yeah. Uh, number 11 for The Heroes, Jefferson Smith. Number five for Cheers. And then I also found that it was uh, in the first group of 25 to be in the National Film Registry. 
which will come up a lot in this because a lot of 39 movies were actually in the first group of film registry. So that's pretty nice. Yeah. That's a big honor. You know, hearing all those, I mean, I may, I probably wouldn't put it quite so high on the AFI top 100 lists, but I, I, I'm okay with all those. I mean, mm -hmm. at least the inclusion, you know. So. Yeah. But that was Mr. Smith and he went to Washington. One last thing. Interesting. Unless I missed it, they never reveal the political parties. Mm-mm. So. Do they reveal the state either? Pretty, mm, now that you say that. I don't think they do. I can't remember. I feel though it's like a sort of a central Midwest area. Yeah. You know, yeah, but so. what would he be though? Let's take the vote. Democrat oh. or Republican? Wikipedia says unnamed Western state. Unnamed we Western state. I think, I think he'd be like a Democrat. I think it'd be like a socialist Democrat if it would be today. Yeah. Hey, Bernie. <laughs> I agree. And I mean, maybe there was a clue because I think it was kind of implied that he was part of the majority, which I imagine at this time was Democrat. Um, I mean, because FDR and whatnot, but I don't know. But yeah, never fully real. I think he would be a Democrat also, which is funny because Jimmy Stewart was like a staunch conservative. And so there we have it. They always are. They always are. Anything else on Mr. Smith? Good picture. Yeah. Picture? <laughs> a good, pic a good Golly gee. picture show. Golly gee, folks. <laughs> we are in 39. <laughs> and I remember seeing it back then. Ladies and gentlemen, Harvey Firestone. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have one more before we're going to take a quick break in the middle of these nominees. One that I think we all adore quite a bit. <sighs> Ninotchka. Anybody want to jump on the summary for this one? No? I'm no. surprised. Okay. <laughs> I'll jump on it. Okay, so Ninotchka featuring Greta Garbo mm -hmm. in the title role. Um, Ninotchka. Ninotchka. Garbo laughs. Um... She is so basically it starts out with these three um, Russian men who they're traveling to um, Paris and they're on official business um, for the Russian government to basically um, remind me, are they selling, buying, selling, selling? Yeah. Um, selling these jewels, all this you know, jewelry, and um, they kind of screw it up. And Garbo comes in. She's this you know, kind of stern all about business to kind of make everything right. And she becomes attracted to this region, this man um, played by oh my Melvin, Douglas. Melvin, Melvin Douglas. Douglas. And they basically fall in love. And it's kind of this conflicting ideals of that. He is region, not into what the um, more capitalist and whatnot. And she is from Soviet Russia. And so, but it kind of she kind of finds herself comfortable with him and they fall in love. That becomes a problem when she has to go back to Russia um, later on in the film and fulfill her duties. And it gets a little complicated and why that is the case. But immediate thoughts on Ninochka. 
What a darling little picture. It's so good. I love it. It is our comedy nominee of uh, 39, and it's sort of a, I don't know if you would say screwball. I don't think it's really screwball, but it's one of those that makes you feel really good after you see it, which is always nice. Yeah. And co-writer, I just want to say co-writer is Billy Wilder. Mm -hmm. Up to this point, he hadn't directed anything yet, but I mean, just seeing that he helped co-write it, good stuff to come from him. Yeah. Um, fairly popular, number 11 at the box office, 2.28 million. Four nominations, Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Original Story, and Best Screenplay. Did not win any of them. Um, Crime. Yeah, I mean, Greta Garbo in this movie. Uh, Greta Garbo in this movie. She's wonderful. She's um, just electric on screen. Like, even when she's just stone face. She's everything just like points to her in this movie. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. It's like you want her to hit you. It's one of those performances <laughs> like the film is still good without her when she's not on screen, but I'm just like waiting for her to get back yeah. on screen when she's not. And it's kind of a shame so. that I, I found out it, it was her second to last film, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a way to go out, though. I don't know what her last film was, but hey, this one. This is what we cool. remember. And I love, you mentioned Garbo Laughs. I love that tagline. That is like the tagline that you need to catapult yourself off of. Well, especially because her entire career, she had been built on being the stone-faced, serious, leading lady. And she didn't really do comedies. And if she did do comedies, she was the straight person. Yeah. Funny enough. Um, But, and then that's basically what they try to sell it on. It was like, this is the one where she's going to let herself go. Oh, she does. She does it so good. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like that scene where that, that occurs for the first time with her and Melvin Douglas sitting in the booth at the, uh, the restaurant. He's like trying to tell this joke. Everybody else finds it hilarious. She's like, nah, I'm not feeling it. And then he like busts his ass and she just breaks out laughing. Uh, that's, it's where it like, like pans over to her laugh. Like you don't know that she's laughing yet until it like pans over. Yeah, that's a great scene. Yeah, just for the rest of the movie, she's so charismatic. Their chemistry is just top notch, and her three, um, her three colleagues or whatnot, um, they're really funny as well, and really nice supporting characters that kind of provide even more comic um, entertainment. So it's just it's fun nice how, she, how she quickly gets to grow on the idea of capitalism, but that's only because she falls in love with a capitalist. But he also is like turning, like turning on the social communism because he's reading the communist manifesto. And I like that because like, if it had been taken like just a few years later, they would have been like, no fucking way. There'd be no communist manifesto in this movie. Mm -hmm. So I like that little like pre cold war, like, no, Russia wasn't always the enemy. They didn't have every idea in line as it shows in the movie, but neither is capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I definitely don't think it's something to where, like, I mean, it's definitely not where, like, Garbo falls in love and then just, like, abandons all of her beliefs and all of her ideologies yeah. or something like that. Um, but the presentation of Russia is interesting when she's over there and you can see just how dreary she is. Um, 
her and the other characters and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I really like this conflicting ideals and how it comes together and whatnot. And in Russia, we get that nice, I'll call it a cameo because it's a scene with uh, somebody named Bela Lugosi. Yes. Wonderful. That's just nice to see him. Yeah. So this movie, um, number 52 on AFI's greatest laughs list and number 40 on greatest passions. Hmm. I don't know how in the world uh, Dark Victory is higher in that regard, but it may be time for a new list. Maybe. Can I say the director of this is Ernst Lubitsch, and yes. the man has made some of like my favorite movies, particular to be or not to be. Mm. Very good at comedies, romantic comedies especially. And the shop around the corner. Which yes. Is also yes. Yes. And again, Ninochka, because I'm, I'm guess this is obvious because we're talking about such an early year, has been remade into a Fred Astaire musical, and then this nifty little Catherine Hepburn, Bob Hope version, the Iron Petticoat, which is really weird. I have saw you... that one. I wasn't told. Totally have you seen it. it? I saw it before I even saw Ninochka, actually. And then I saw it was like a remake of it, and I was like, oh, maybe I should have seen that one first. That's why Catherine is in like the Russian. She's like, oh, the Russian accent. Oh, <laughs> Moscow. <laughs> I um the screenplay for this movie as well, just top notch. Mm -hmm. Some of the lines that really stuck out to me. Um, she talks about costing Russia seven cows. That that was great. Um, oh, the one that I texted you. It was like, oh, I admired your what is it? The fifteen year or the five year plan fifteen years ago. Yes. <laughs> um, That's like I laughed so hard at that. And I love the scenes where they're talking about like the Eiffel Tower and she's like, it's just a waste of electricity. And uh, Melvin Douglas is kind of like being sarcastic. I think he's the one that says, yeah, Parisian only goes to the Eiffel Tower to jump off. And it's just, they're just their interplay. Like it's, it's perfect. The chemistry and how the screenplay reflects that. So well written. Great dialogue. Yeah. Any closing thoughts on Nanashka other than that everybody listening should watch it? Definitely. Not just one of the best movies of 1939, but one of the best ever, in my opinion. I love this movie so much. It's up there. I mean, I think about, like, especially, like, in this genre. I'm not sure if anything else. Especially I mean, if, if someone has not seen a Greta Garbo film. We are recording on the Lesbian Day of Visibility. <laughs> Go out and watch you a Greta Garbo film. And make sure it's an Anoshka. Queen Christina's good too. I really like Queen Christina. Well, it's either you start with something dramatic or something funny, I guess. Yeah. You could dive into her silent career as well, because she has some good stuff there too. Sure. True. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a short break, um, and then we will be back, and we will cover the last five nominees, including our big winner. I am Oscar, the ultimate glory in Hollywood success. Yes, everybody's here. Tall, bashful James Stewart and the lovely girl. The quite fabulous Mr. Charles Lawton with his distinguished wife, Elsa Lanchester. 
revered Gene Herschel and his missus, torn tonight from his fireside and first edition. Did you ask for glamour, Mr. and Mrs. Audience? Well, Hedy Lamar's here, but darn it, with her husband, Gene Markey. Melvin Douglas, Helen Gehagen, Irving Fitchell. Everybody, you bet everybody. Scarlett O'Hara, her glorious self. Vivian Lee, escorted by producer David Selzman. Of course, I don't have to tell you that this is dear old May Robeson, one of the youngest of them all, or that this is one of the loveliest. Olivia de Havilland. And we're back. That's the best I could do right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those nights. I don't know if you were expecting like a long thing, but I'm looking at my pizza and I'm like, eh. It's a Friday. We're back, kids. <laughs> we are back. Cover the last five films that were nominated for Best Picture. Midway through, um, pretty nice mix so far. Moving on to a literary adaptation of Mice and Men, which have we all read the book? Yes. Did we have to read it in high school. It's a book. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I've read it. You read it freshman year in my old high school. Same. I think I read it as a sophomore. And so it's been like, I don't know, seven years or something. So I it's, didn't. It's literally like a hundred pages long. Yeah. Super quick read. This one girl in my class got out of reading it because of the language in it. Oh my gosh. Really? <laughs> yeah, she got a note from her mom. Wow. Interesting. So I'm like, girl, it was a hundred page book out of anything. <laughs> this was your one chance. Yeah, you do that for like Moby Dick or something like that. That's Who like reads Moby Dick nowadays. It's true, true. It's kind of been retired. Can I read the description of this movie on the that the letterbox has? Yes. Okay, so if we all know of mice and men, it's about these two drifters. Is that the word? Whatever, who go to work on this farm and stuff happens. There you go. But the letterbox description, a mentally retarded giant and his level-headed guardian find work at a sadistic cowboy's ranch in Depression-era America. What (laughs) a great summary. Who the hell? And then the tagline of this that they have is, she was made for love and tragedy. Yeah, she was like, they really focused on her character for the marketing. I just pulled up a poster for the film that says, dangerous to herself and to men. That's weird. It's ooh. The marketing team just <laughs> was all about making this sex. And the least sexy movie, I think, in this <laughs> year. <laughs> Yeah, but if you don't if you don't know the story of mice and men in like a real summary, it's based on John John Steinbeck's book. Again, everybody reads it when you're in high school because it's short. It's George, who's played by Burgess Bur- Burgess Burgess Meredith. Oh my god! And Lenny Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, Lenny has some developmental issues. They both are just like walking they take their bus they don't have jobs this is the depression era they find a job at a farm uh where they meet what's his name curly curly who's like the sadistic cowboy (laughs) (laughs) and there's scenes involving rabbits who get 
killed, dogs who get killed. There's Curly's wife, and her name is Curly's wife. Actually, in this adaptation, they gave her the name May. Her and name it, is May. This is the only adaptation <laughs> to give her a name. Other than that, in the book, she's Curly's wife. Oof. Very possessive of that. But yeah, it's, again, John Steinbeck's book. He would The next year, he would have The Grapes of Wrath as a film. 39, The Grapes of Wrath, a novel which changed America literary movement here, was published. So, you know, he had himself a heck of a year. Yeah. I must say, like, it was really interesting to see Burgess Meredith play someone other than Mick from the Rocky series. And I'm sure he had, like, an extensive film career, but that's just the character he's always been for me. And obviously quite a bit different, quite a bit younger um, alongside... Lon Chaney Jr. And yeah, pretty good pair. I mean, I think it's a it's it's a well shot film. Mm -hmm. I don't remember enough of the novel to remember like like for example, I know like they've always treated um in this version May pretty poorly as a character. Um, very poorly. I think that was especially true. Yeah, she didn't have a name. Yeah, this this follows the novel pretty well because again, a hundred pages turned into a hundred and six minute film. That's about on point. What are you gonna What are you really gonna take out of that? Yeah, true. Also, I'd like to point out Burgess Meredith, the Penguin in Adam West Batman. That's what he should be known for. But that's just me. Oh, Brett, y'all be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> no, no. Funny Burgess Meredith story. When I first watched the Rocky movies, I thought he was the voice of Popeye just because like his voice in those movies just reminded me of Popeye so much. And I was a sad little 10 year old when I found out that he didn't voice Popeye. <laughs> so I think I did like this movie, despite like some things like being a little ableist. I do think the story does suffer from that. To kind of go, but all that aside, I don't like Long Chaney Jr. I don't think he's a good actor. I've, I'm big in the genre. I've seen him in so many horror films. He's not good in any of those. He's just the wolf man that wants to die. <laughs> and then in this, he's just, this is the most serviceable I think he's ever been in a movie, I think, where he's actually trying. But I still don't think he's good. And I think it was distracting me. Yeah, I mean... I just I I wasn't sure how to assess his performance in this. And I mean, I haven't seen the John Malkovich performance either in the updated version. Mm-hmm. I've but, seen that, but I don't remember it at all. But oh, it's yeah. weird. It's weird how like you brought up that he's the Wolfman, and I've seen a lot of him where he is the Wolfman because there's a bajillion sequels to that. Mm-hmm. And it's weird now that you mention it, he is pretty like one note. He's one note Cheney. <laughs> Compared to his dad, who's like the, one of the greats, the but king of silent horror. He literally just like was writing on his dad's name his whole career, pretty much. But I don't know. I mean, he's fine in it. I don't know how you can mess up a role like that. Of let me get the Lenny, George and Lenny. I don't know. You get him confused. But uh, I don't know. They're both fine actors. Yeah, I mean, I think it it does. You know, if it does follow the source material pretty closely, it's got a decent narrative in some aspects. Um, I did like it quite a bit, um, though it does have some issues, obviously. I really noticed the score, especially in the beginning. 
the film kind of like heavy and operatic and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it was kind of a revisitation of when I read the novel, you know, when like the scene when he's breaking Curly's hand and he's in big trouble or could be in big trouble and mm-hmm. with the dog and with May, you know, Curly's wife. And so, that the, yeah, this ending too, it's like, look at the flowers. Right. Yeah. Look at the flowers. Flowers, Lenny. I, I always wondered how they would shoot that. Like, would it be like from a distance and they choose to kind of just focus on Burgess Meredith's character who's doing the shooting. His actions were kind of weird there. It was like, he like jumps and shoots like he's in like an action scene or something like that. And it didn't really have that. Like, I don't know that it was sad, obviously, but it didn't, he didn't play it in a sorrowful way. I don't think, I don't know. Let's see. What was this nominated for? This is nominated for four uh, picture sound recording, musical scoring, and original score. Interesting that it didn't get the adapted screenplay because sure. then John, John Steinbeck adapted this, so he adapted his own story. May I don't know. I don't know what the story is there. Maybe it wasn't good enough. Whatever else is nominated, but interesting. Yeah. I will say, I mean, this was the first movie I watched for this. Um, so I've watched like 19 films since I saw this one, so it's a little cloudy for me at times, but it's good. I think it's a good depression era story. Like it really, mm-hmm. like it, it, when you tell in a story from the era when it's still happening, because you said it was the last year of the depression. Mm-hmm. And so they're still going through it. And so they're in it. They know what's going on. They're not like making this movie in 1980 and you're like, I think this is what's happening. And you can just, I think being of the time, it, in a weird way, it doesn't date itself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think they're the, I really found interesting the concept of like, it's all about their dreams. Like they want to get this ranch and they're this place of their own. And Lenny wants to raise the rabbits and have all this farm ground, things like that. And like in any era that's difficult to do, you place it in the depression era. That's a pretty big dream mm-hmm. uh, that they're chasing. So I like the beginning of this movie and I know it has no, I mean, it's not important at all, but it's them getting on the bus and then they just go to the farm and stuff. I don't know. It's again, depression era. It's, is it, I think maybe, no, I was going to say, is it like not a period piece? That's what I'm thinking about. It's a period piece in that nowadays we look at it and it is set during the depression, but I don't know. Steinbeck, he's good at the depression stuff because again, Grapes of Wrath, mm-hmm. same year that novel was published. Yeah. Directed by Lewis Milestone, who I think won one of the first Best Director Awards at the oh. Oscars. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. And two, Ara- two Arabian Nights. Yeah, and that was the only nomination for that film, I'm pretty sure, because they had like a total of what six films nominated for the entire ceremony back then. So, yeah, but hmm. yeah, any closing thoughts on Of Mice and Men? Like Love Affair, it's very a simple nomination. It's like it's an, huh, you're here. Interesting. Yeah, totally. 
The next one, one of the big, more recognizable ones. I want to say, I want to go back to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Okay, because we're going to have a Thomas Mitchell tracker on this show. That was number one. Hmm. We're moving on to number two. The film in which he won Best Supporting Actor, Thomas Mitchell. Um, the, movie that put, the movie that puts the ye into the hall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anybody want to summarize this one? Take I shall. I'll do it. Okay, so it's nine characters in search of an exit. No, it's nine characters. They're on their way to their destination, and they're in a stagecoach, so the Old West. Of course, they have to go through territory unknown, a lot of danger for them. Um, then they meet along John Wayne. John Wayne is one of the characters. I think this was his first really big starring role, right? Yeah, like they, yeah. the studio did not want him to come on because he was a B-movie actor. And yeah. John Ford, like, trust me, we got this. So, so this is really the beginning of his stardom. Um, yeah, it's really just like a journey of these nine strangers who slowly become bonded together because they have no other choice but to be bonded. And there's everything from a doctor to a, a prostitute. And John Wayne is a cowboy. And yeah. It's also filmed in Monuments Valley, which if you watch any other John Ford Western post this, this is like one of his favorite places to film. And it's actually really beautiful, and I want to go there someday. Yeah. I mean, this one in black and white, a lot of his, you know, for a lot of people, something like The Searchers comes to mind because it's in color and whatnot, and it's Monument Valley. But this was, I think there are a lot of firsts in this movie. It's just It was just super influential, especially for that genre. I don't think, in my opinion, John Wayne is the lead role in this. I don't think so either. And that's why I like it. Yeah. I was uh, actually surprised at Zay that you liked it. I know. I do not like Westerns. But this has reached my top five Westerns. I mean, it's not a big Jabbar jump, but it got there. I just, I enjoy it. I love the small space of it. Mm. And racism, not too high. Not great, but you know, they didn't do too bad. Yeah. And I mean the I just the the social commentary and whatnot, I think uh what is it? Thomas Mitchell has a line where he's talking to Claire Trevor Claire Trevor's character, who I think is the lead character. Um she plays yeah, she plays a sex worker and um he says something like we are um we're, we're victims of like social discrimination because of the way we work mm -hmm. or something like that. And so you've got where like half of the stage coaches are these like affluent people in society have these jobs. And then you have those where you got the drunk doctor, the outlaw, um, Claire Trevor. And so you kind of got that dynamic working amongst them, which I found really interesting. One of my favorite people in this, and I don't know, I may be alone in this, but it's Andy Devine as the actual driver of the stagecoach. Oh yeah, I thought he was great. I think that just because his voice, I mean, he, he's just like a fun guy and they give him a lot of funny moments in this. Like I, I caught my mom actually watching a little bit of this with me when I started it. And he's talking about how his family of jumping beans from Mexico are coming up and stuff. And I'm, I'm of Hispanic descent, so I can laugh at something like that and be <laughs> okay with it. 
But yeah, I don't know. I like Andy Devine. I like Thomas Mitchell in this. Who Thomas Mitchell's great. He won his Oscar for this. This is what? We're up to two with him now? Number two. Yep, number two. Yeah, this was his year, um, and this was his big role. And yeah, really, he was definitely one of my favorite characters in this, if not my favorite. Um, I found the line he tells Claire Trevor, we're victims of social prejudice, is what he says. Um, and it's really interesting to see him because he is this doctor, and I don't know where they were with like, you know, becoming a doctor at this point, not exactly what it is today, obviously. And he likes to drink and is constantly drunk. And so he's very funny, but also there's also this underlying emotion there. And the, the scenes like the action scenes in this are just so, I was kind of in awe of like, how do they do this in 1939? Mm -hmm. So I think there was one scene in this where, it's the horses are coming this way and the camera is coming this way. As in, if you're looking at yourself, the horses are coming towards you for those of you listening. <laughs> and the, I forgot we're not doing like a YouTube thing here. Podcast, and the camera, visual media. there you go. And the camera is placed uh, where the horse's foot would be. And then you're just wondering, well, how in the hell is that horse not going to ram into that camera? And it, I think it's this movie because like, I'm pretty sure when I saw this, I was like, Wow, that's cool. That's the very first GoPro. John <laughs> Note to self, never describe a scene for a podcast. It's too <laughs> but no, and I, I can see why this was like the star making vehicle for John Wayne, because when we first see him, whew, that like zoom in shot is a <laughs> it's a star building shot. That's a scene. <laughs> He literally brings his leg. He cocks his gun out, and he's like, "Howdy, pilgrim." <laughs> he doesn't say that, but it feels like he's gonna say that. But it's literally—it's like the shot. It zooms in on him with the dramatic ass music, and it's like, "Here he is, the Ringo Kid." I mean, I think that speaks for John Ford as director and how he like really like positions where, where how he wants to show his heroes, or at least the protagonist of a story. I would yeah. know because I've now seen five. I didn't realize this was going to be the year of John Ford for me. I have seen none before this year. Now I'm up to five. Ooh. Congratulations. Um, I watched a little bit of an interview with Peter Bogdanovich about this film because I have the Criterion edition. And he said it was like the first of all what they refer to as like adult or psychological Westerns that went a little deeper, um, a little more, you know, less like cartoonish and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And that's amazingly Ford usually got what he wanted on the first take, which I think with some of the shots he was working with here is like, that's pretty wild. I mean, he uh, had to be, he was making like three or four movies a year. True. That's he a good point. Three and 39 alone. And this was definitely the best. I think I so. agree. Yeah. I really liked Claire Trevor in this. Um, she wasn't nominated. I think I personally would have nominated her for Best Actress. Which is also interesting. She also got top billing in this. So yeah. like back then, like given the actresses the top billing, I don't know. It's something we need to go back to, I think. I don't see it as often. Definitely. How established was she? She was pretty oh wow, she made a lot of movies before this too. <laughs> yeah. 
This is so, back in the time when you could like Thomas Mitchell, you could make more than a movie a year. Right. Yeah, it won for um, Thomas Mitchell won a supporting actor for this role. It also won musical scoring. Does have a really good score. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Art Direction, Cinematography, and Film Editing. Um, number nine Western on the AFI's um, top ten Westerns list, which personally I think is pretty low. I agree. It's also interesting because on the top 100 list, they have the searchers at like number 10. And I think this needs to replace the searchers. Yeah. Cause I don't, I didn't care for the searchers. I didn't hate it, but it didn't like make me feel anything either. I will I say, I will say that out of that, it is number nine out of just 10. Right. Yeah. Right. right. For those at home who didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know. That's Stagecoach. Anything else there? Saying with the searchers again, I, I don't like the searchers that much, but... It's a, it's a movie that a lot of directors liked, and that's why people talk about it. It's a movie that a lot of, like, film bros like, too. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think this is John Ford's magnum opus, per se. Ooh, big <laughs> words. Just getting the vocabulary out. Oh, yeah. Between oh, this cool. and, like... Grapes of Wrath the next year is up there. Um, and so this is definitely his prime. Okay. What I think we're all... Sorry, what was that? I said what Christian specifically has been waiting for. Yes. <laughs> Christian, introduce it. Go into... Do whatever you want to do with this. This is your shining moment. <clears throat> we shall be talking about the greatest movie ever made. The greatest movie ever known to man, woman, or child. A movie that has adorned the hearts of children for near 80 years. This film I am talking about is, of course, The Wizard of Oz. Clap. That's enough. Okay, so if you don't know, if you don't know the basic plot of this, um, what? A uh, little girl in Kansas... Holla, uh, she gets swooped away to the magical land of Oz in a tornado or twister or cyclone because they mention all three of them. Uh, fun fact there. Uh, so she gets, she's in her little sepia tone world. She goes to Oz. She's in a colored technicolor world. She meets munchkins. She meets a good witch. She meets a bad witch. She meets a three merry tin men, scarecrow, cowardly lion. They go to Oz so she can get home with her little ruby slippers I mean, do I really have to go on? Who hasn't seen this movie? <laughs> I mean, there's a person on Twitter who told us they'd never seen it, but I mean, <laughs> to us, I don't know. I won't say their names. Anyway, yeah, great movie. Love it. Moving on. Should have won everything. Yeah. Um, I'm going to dig myself a hole here. Any guesses for how old I was when I first watched this? Uh, 20. 10. Ooh, right in the middle. I was 15. Okay. 15. It's not a big hole. You know, I I think I didn't really have much interaction with this film as a kid. I mean, my grandma loved it, but I don't know. I I hear about a lot of people who were actually scared of it as a kid. Oh, please. <laughs> I, I would know I didn't watch it, but... I think I was about six, 
seven, something around there. And my parents had it like taped on like on a VHS tape. They taped it off TV. And they just like, we're going to show this to you. And I'm like, cool. And then I watched it. I was like, I've seen many references to this. I don't think it was life changing at the time, but at the same time, I was like, no, I really dig this movie. Yeah. We have the VHS. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was the first film I'd ever seen. And since then, I have seen it in theaters thrice. So there's that. More vocabulary. Yeah. Well, I'm from Kansas. Brett's from Kansas, and yet he's seen this at 15. (laughs) I know. But like Kansans, like, I'd be interested to see like by state by state who enjoys this movie the most because Kansas are probably near the bottom of this because people get so tired of hearing, well, you're not in Kansas anymore. And but I love it. I think it's brilliant, obviously. I mean, I've been asked if I lived on a farm. <laughs> Same. I mean, I live in the city, so it's funny um, Zay, that you mentioned all the references because I remember there was like a study that came out a while back about like what was the biggest movie of all time, most influential movie of all time. And they went with Wizard of Oz because of how often it was like referenced in other works and other directorial efforts. But yeah, they put it over Star Wars. Star Wars fans got pissed as they tend to do. Okay. Because without Wizard of Oz, there'd be no Star Wars. Because Star Wars ripped off the, like, not ripped off, but it's the same journey story. Exactly. I mean, there's also movies like Martin Scorsese's After Hours that is based on The Wizard of Oz, pretty much. Because you're going on a journey and you meet, like, different people at different stops. Yeah. And Joel or Ethan Cohen, I can't remember which. I want to say it's Joel he is quoted as saying that every narrative film that a director sets out to make is a remake of the wizard of Oz. And so pretty, pretty much at this point. Yeah. I mean, narratively it's, it's classic allegorically in some ways too. Have you ever met a person who hated this movie? I don't know if I knew hated, but people would be like, Oh, I don't think it's fine. Send me their, uh, send me their name. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's like one of those perfect movies. Do I think it's one of my like top, top, top favorites? No, but it's easily my top 100. And it's my number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love it because I don't know. I don't know if anybody actually like people say, Oh, a kid's movie. It, it is like it is. It is for kids, but it's also so deep and layered and perfectly great for adults too. Like any age, you can watch this and let it, unless it scares you, like it does for some people, I guess. Um, for an 80 year old movie, it looks great too. It yeah. still looks great. Uh, that, that movie has so much color. And I wish movies that came out today had that much color. Right? It's bright. And because it's bright, it's lively and it makes you feel so fucking fantastic with yourself and even when it's in sepia tone it's Mm -hmm. still bright yeah like uh, kansas has never been so happy before in sepia tone i should know i'm from kansas (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's obviously where we get um over the rainbow the great judy garland performance in that 
by the way, how old is she supposed to be in this movie? I think like 12. 12? Yeah, okay. she's supposed to be a kiddo. They like, um, what yeah. do you call that? They wrapped her too. Uh, mm-hmm. Binded. Binded, yeah. yeah. They had to bind her too so she wouldn't look as old as she was at the time. She was like 19, I think, right? Yeah. And this, I mean, it d- directed by Victor Fleming, but like when we'll talk about Gone with the Wind, it had a slew of directors to it also. Mm-hmm. George Cukor that I've read was the deciding factor in actually how Dorothy would look with her gingham gown and her hair being as it was. I mean, there's just like, like a shitload of fun facts that y'all just need to read. IMDb it. <laughs> there's also... I believe it's covered in an episode of you must remember this during the MGM series. Mm. I believe so. Let's see. What did it win? It won three awards, original score, original song over the rainbow. Thank you. And an honorary juvenile award to Miss Judy Garland. The The only. Oh my God. Moment of silence. And it was nominated for four, including picture, color, cinematography, art direction, and special effects, which I think should have won. True. I agree. For sure. How the hell are they doing all those flying monkeys? That's <laughs> Well, yeah. before they went extinct. <laughs> Man, rest in peace, flying monkeys. Uh, we also have Over the Rainbow was the number one greatest song from AFI. Number 82, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, on that same list. It's number 10, the best 100 movies from 2007. The Greatest Thrills, it pops in at number 43. The Wicked Witch is number four for The Greatest Villains. Total of a Feeling We're Not in Kansas Anymore comes in at number four for The Greatest Quotes. There's No Place Like Home, number three on the quotes. I'll Get You My Pretty and Your Little Dog too. number 99 on the quotes. Oh my God, AFI. Number 26 for Greatest Cheers, number 3 for Greatest Musicals, and number 1 for Greatest Fantasy Flick. And in the first group to the National Film Registry, look, this movie has won a lot. Yeah. It's funny because it definitely didn't win enough Oscars this time. And I will say that a few years ago, there was the pink over the rainbow at the Oscars. If anybody remembers. Yes, I love that performance. Yes, yep. it was very good. Liza was there. Lorna Luft was there. Judy's kids. That was such a weird thing, though. They were like going to celebrate it, but they didn't do much of anything besides that. They didn't. I mean, the song. I mean, the song's enough. But I had a former friend, I'll say, who <laughs> was like, "Why are they honoring the Wizard of Oz when Gone with the Wind was Best Picture?" And I said, "Well, you idiot." Did Gone with the Wind have like a song that they could easily perform? Like Gone with the Wind, they're slaves in the wind. (laughs) I want them to write an original song for Gone with the Wind to perform at the next Oscars. (laughs) Well, we got the Wizard of Oz instead. No, I'm sorry, loading on this. Somebody else talk about this. I love this. No, I like and Wizard of Oz is timeless, whereas Gone with the Wind is aged. Um. It's and also so, very easily accessible to watch. Yeah. And um, it went on to have some sequels, like 1985's Return to Oz, which is batshit crazy. So dark. It's so fucking weird. And that I think that movie caused more nightmares for kids, because that's not a kid's movie. 
but they sure sold it that way. But then we can't go without talking about the classic, classic Sam Raimi's prequel, <laughs> Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh my! Which may be better than the Wizard of Oz, in my opinion. <gasps> <laughs> I'm officially resigning my post. Come on. Actor of our generation. When I saw that in theaters, I immediately called my friend who had moved from Kansas City to Albuquerque. And I told her, girl, this was the shit. I don't think I will ever trust an adaptation of those of Oz again. It pained me. Zay and I talk about this movie like at least once a year in a memorial service. Your um, picture in my phone is still James Franco in Oz the Great and Powerful. That's so cruel. <laughs> but yeah. That's the greatest movie of all time. I think we're done with this. <laughs> the other ones, you only go up. You only go down from there. Yeah. Um, Let me just sorry. point out that one more thing. It is probably the most widely accessible film. And I've even read that it's probably the most watched film in all of history because of the many viewings on television. I mean, it's on TNT every Thanksgiving Turner Classic Movie shows it. The theaters, they'll do anniversaries all the damn time, like they just did in January. People own it. I mean, in 80 years, you've had enough time to see it. So, I mean, I know many families that would make it like a continuing tradition to watch it the day it came on TV. Because it wasn't like constantly on TV. It was like a special day that The Wizard of Oz was showing on TV. I mean, even now, I know, like, TNT does it. You have, like, back-to-back -back viewings of it. And I always try and catch it. It's, um, it's special. Definitely. At least I didn't watch it when I was 15, but... <laughs> no, I had definitely seen it, like, three or four times by the time I was 15. Brad. Yeah, um, a few things that I noticed this time around... Um, that I hadn't noticed before. Scarecrow holding a gun when they're like storming the castle. I, I don't yes. know how I missed that before. It's just like, oh my god, he's holding a gun. He's a member of the NRA. <laughs> it's funny. Um, just some of the other effects, like again, how to not win visual effects, but um, the lion's tail as well. I've noticed it before, but especially mm. this time, like that costume. And the makeup work in general is just fantastic. So I mean, it's I mean, all that costume work. God bless them for uh, having to go through the hours of putting that all on them. Yeah, no kidding. But it was. I mean, I I have nothing else to say except it's the greatest movie ever made. And if you haven't seen it yet, I'm I still can't believe people somehow. have never seen it. <laughs> Let's watch it. Cool. We're going to go from Wizard of Oz to our next last film here, Wuthering Heights. Have you all read the source material for this? Because I haven't. No. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I read half of it. So. 
I mean, I feel like it's something I wouldn't hate, but I've also heard that most of the adaptations of it are not accurate. We, when we read it in high school, and then I spark note half of it, we watched a version where Tom Hardy is Heathcliff. So, and this is before I knew who Tom Hardy was. I was just like, he has very big lips. Oh my god. Um, but yeah, we have this story of Kathy and Heathcliff. Um, played by Merle Oberon and Lawrence Olivier. And it's basically the story of like, once again, class differences. He is, um, he kind of works at her mansion and is taken in as a uh, child, as a child. And they grow up together. They kind of love each other. She ends up with the other rich guy and he kind of goes off, comes back, buys the mansion, Wuthering Heights. Heathcliff does. Heathcliff does. And it follows their romance, I guess. They're very the tumultuous. They're very tumultuous romance that I got very tired of very fast. Same. Yeah. Like I, because the biggest issue I had with this, and this is going back to the source material, is the characterization of Kathy. Because one minute she's like, "Oh Heathcliff, I love you, I love you," and the next minute she's like, "You're penniless trash." <laughs> And that's back and forth through the whole movie. And it's like you either want them to get together or you don't. And by like halfway through, I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. And then it just ends. It's like all of a sudden, again, going to spoil it. All of a sudden, she dies. Oh, and... That death seems so funny. <laughs> it is. Because they just have their ha head and their hands. And I'm just like, what are y'all doing? That's not acting. Is this like a last minute reshoot? That's funny. Know. It ruined it for me. Well, I mean, I wasn't super into this movie, but once that happened, I was like, okay, y'all. I agree. Not really into it. I thought it was obviously well made, pretty beautiful. Same. I thought the cinematography was really good. And I thought the costumes were great. I really like the costumes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like Geraldine Fitzgerald in this, who we mentioned in Dark also, Victory. Yeah, yeah. I liked her in Dark Victory more, but I mean, she was, I mean, she had herself another good year. Yeah, I would agree. It's, in it's interesting that uh, the actress in this, say her name again. Merle Oberyn, I believe. Yeah. Wasn't nominated. Yeah. But Larry Olivier, I'm going to call him Larry Olivier. Larry. I, because he is dead and I can. Larry Olivier was. I didn't think he did a whole lot. I always thought Lawrence Olivier was a little overrated. He scowls. Yeah. Um, in addition to those two being nominated, it was obviously nominate, nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, um, for... William Wyler. William, William Wyler. How did I forget that? Um, screenplay, original score, and art direction, and it won. Um, Zay mentioned the great cinematography. It did win black and white cinematography that year, which is fine. I mean, I'm. It, it is AFI's number fifteen great passions. Even though they're like, where's the other choices for that? <laughs> they I need to look each up other. Then they love each other. I'm a little worried about the love lives of the AFI voters. Like, I think so. 
there's something going on there, but I don't know. Once again, I, I, I find it pretty forgettable if I'm honest. It's, yeah, it's, it's a heavy British costume drama. Once I like realized that it was a costume drama, I was like, well, I'm going to check out for a little bit, I guess. Yeah. And, that's and I've seen this, I have seen this now twice because I watched this last September when my aunts were like, this movie looks good. We saw it on TCM. Let's watch it. And we all watched it. And I was the only one to end up paying attention. <laughs> they totally checked out on me. Like, then I had to watch it again. That was, that was Wuthering Heights. I'm done with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's, someone listening that just loves this movie and they're just like gutted right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny though, because I've seen like, I've looked up recently some like news and lists about 1939. They say it's the greatest year in cinema. And this is one of those that they list. Like this is the year that Wuthering Heights came out. And I was like, it doesn't fit in there with like Wizard Maybe of Oz. because it was like the first big Hollywood adaptation of the story. Maybe. I wonder if this is the adaptation people go to. Like, this is the one that got it the most right. But even I then, know. I don't know. Because I haven't... I mean, I'm not big on these... Like, the Wuthering Heights adaptation, since I haven't even, like, read the book. But, I don't know. I hear a lot of complaints about the Wuthering Heights adaptations in general, so that's where it's... Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Not sure if I plan on reading the book either. So I will someday just because I didn't finish it in high school. <laughs> yeah. That is Wuthering Heights. And with that, Goodbye, we move Wuthering. on to the best picture winner of this year. Da 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 with the wind. <laughs> I was gonna do it super slowly the way it like comes across the screen, but I was like, no, I, I can't hold it for that long. With its like 10 minute introduction. Yeah. Um Gone with the Winds. Again, another one pretty popular, I would say. For inflation, it is the highest grossing box office hit of all time. It's the juggernaut. Juggernaut. And even for that time, I don't know how accurate this is, but $199 million? That is ridiculous for 1939. That doesn't seem right. I That's see. Box I don't know. Mojo has it as. Is that what they have? Um, yeah, their domestic says 189 Okay, so maybe I was just off by 10 But yeah. Well, then it says domestic life gross is 200, so it had like a re release or something in there. Oh, yeah, true. true. Well, you also have to factor in that it came out in December of 39, so it had the next whole year to do that. Also, when we talk about it's like being that high and then adjusted for inflation is one point something billion, it doesn't mm -hmm. include the foreign, and the foreign made just as much as the domestic. So it made like twice that, but they can't calculate that because you can't really do foreign inflation. Yeah. In other words, Avengers who? <laughs> uh, yeah, directed by Victor Fleming. Once again, huge year for him between this and um, The Wizard of Oz. 
this is anybody want to go into the plot it is the story of the old south in the time of civil war between man and his brother basically uh, that's basically it okay so scarlett o'hara vivian lee she's in the south she's the belle of the ball pretty much she's a whiny spoiled brat and then war comes around, and her beloved Ashley Wilkes, who's already betrothed to his cousin, Melanie Wilkes, has to go off to war. And so she marries somebody else. She becomes a widow. And that's the first, like, hour and a half. <laughs> Woo. And then Clark Gable is Red Butler, who's a guns carrier, right? Something like that. Uh, who falls for her, and she falls for him. Civil War happens reconstruction happens it's four hours long that's the best synopsis i can give to you i i don't know this this also feels to me personally like a if you haven't seen it yet where you've been because at least you should see it once in your lifetime and i did that for the very first time this year so check that off the list in the theater mind you this no. was my second time seeing this. The first time I saw it was in high school. I saw it with my mom because she said, I don't remember if she said it's one of her favorite movies or she said that after she saw it with me. But then, I, but I watched it and I was like, I don't, I can see what, like the history behind the movie is great. That's what I love about the movie the most is to hear like the production of it and like how it like turned into such a juggernaut in the film industry. Oh, when watching it, I'm just like, even when you're not thinking about the racist parts, watching it, I'm just like, it's fine. This is my sixth time watching this. You've spent an entire day watching that movie. I have seen it twice in theaters as well. So. I think. I mean, obviously, it's beautiful. True, the colors and this, like that one scene where uh, Red, I forget what's happening in the scene, but it's just all red. When he's leaving her for, that, okay, for her to, leaving. yeah, to go back to Tara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right when they get out of Atlanta from the burning of Atlanta, which the burning of Atlanta is a great scene. Mm-hmm. And again, to bring up Zay's point of the history behind this, that's them burning the King Kong set down. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yes, oh my god. Y'all, uh, Making of a Legend, Gone with the Wind, documentary. Good hmm. watch. Yeah. No. Um, so from what I've gathered from us three, we all have pretty different viewpoints on this movie. Mm-hmm. I, like, love it. I get the, you know, the problematic stuff today, in today's views, obviously. I also love it because I've read the book. And it's very close to the book. I mean, there's like a lot of characters deleted, but really, who cares? Um, Isn't the book it, like a thousand pages long or something like that? And I have read it, yes. <laughs> it was very easy to read, too. That's it's, again, because I've seen it so many times. Yeah, and bring that, I think that's part of the reason it was so popular is because the book was so popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember there being, I read like there was like this huge search for who would play Scarlet. And people were were very invested in that. Um, I mean, like every major actress wanted to be Scarlet. Exactly. 
I actually found an article today when I was looking for the whole uh, balance situation for this year where there was an article from the New York Times that said Norma Shear to star in Gone with the Wind as Scarlet. That would be oh. intriguing. Very quickly not because, of course, she didn't end up playing that. But, I mean, we could talk a little bit about Vivian Lee because she does win Best yeah. Actress in this. So good. Yeah, and I, I, I think like... This is really tough for me because I love Garbo in Ninochka. And I think like Vivian Lee, I just I just think of her performance and the word that comes to mind is endurance. Like really though. Oh, the Maybe word that guy. came to my mind was big old bitch. I love <laughs> she is such a big bitch in this movie. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> <laughs> and like well, Vivian Lee has the perfect resting bitch face for this she, role too. She does though. I mean, just the introduction to her is piddle dee dee, whoa, whoa, whoa. If I have to hear another word, whoa, I'll scream. <laughs> like yeah. and she's not she's not even American. She's like everybody was expecting an American actress to be Scarlet because it's the American story of the American Civil War. And yet here comes this British lady who's like, Yeah, sure, I'll play her, why not? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I read that like she got the part mostly because she was visiting her friend, good old Lawrence Olivier, and like visited the set or something like that. Her friend? <laughs> they tended to use, yeah, no. I mean, no, they were like married. So. Oh, they were married? Yeah. Come on, Brad. Interesting. But um, yeah, her performance, Hattie McDaniel wins Best Supporting Actress for this. History. History, yes. The first um, black performer to win an Oscar. You know, yeah, Hattie McDaniel. I, I want to know if hers was like a surprise win. Because you would think going into that Oscars that like Olivia de Havilland would have won. Because oh. Olivia, she's really good in this too. As Melanie. And it's weird how I watched when I watched this the last time. It's... Hattie McDaniel, who carries the second half of the film in, turn of, in terms of supporting actress, and it's Olivia who carries the first half of that film in terms of supporting actress. How I saw it anyway. I don't know about you guys, but... It, I, guess, I mean, it's a four-hour movie. You That's a lot to support. Yeah. You need a couple hands. I mean, it's like the old meme where Hattie McDaniel literally held this movie on her back. Yeah, I mean, Olivia does have her big death scene, spoiler, whatever, in the second act. That was pretty significant, but I agree. Yeah, they kind of go back and forth. And I think both were definitely deserving of those nominations. Um, and I don't know I, if Olivia would have been the runner-up. Probably, I assume, Maybe. but both really good. Um, just lastly on McDaniel here, before we continue on one, she was born in Wichita, Kansas mm -hmm. and of my birth. And also her Oscar is nowhere to be seen. Right. So it might have been thrown into the river. It might have been cataloged wrong and could be in the basement of Howard university, but nobody will ever find that out because nobody's looking, I guess. Probably with Olympia Dukakis's. <laughs> what? Olivia Dukakis, she has she doesn't no one knows where hers is either. Really? Yeah. Got stolen. Hmm. Fun fact. 
But I, if you saw it, you probably wouldn't immediately think it was an Oscar because they looked so much different back then. Yes, so. they are little plaques. Mm-hmm. And well, so... Someday they'll find it. I hope so. I've said eight wins. Obviously, Best Picture, Best Director for Fleming, Vivian Lee for Best Actress, McDaniel for Supporting Actress, Adapted Screenplay, Color Cinematography, Film Editing, and Art Direction. Also had two honorary wins, one for the use of color and the enhancement of dramatic mood and for the use of coordinated equipment and five noms for Clark Gable, Olivia de Havilland, original score, sound recording, and visual effects. Obviously, the big winner. I could dig all of these awards, to be honest, for it. Like, in terms of 39, I get it. Obviously, it was like the movie of 39. And at the time, the movie to end all movies... I mean, even that the honorary wins of color and the enhancement of dramatic mood. Any time where she is facing Tara, her home, and it's like the sun is a blaze of fire. I'm like so moved each time. And it's like, I'll never go hungry again. You know? Yeah, that silhouette is amazing. So I'm going to address the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. That we touched on a couple times. How dare you? I, <laughs> but see what I listen. I think what we always think of the greatness in this movie is, you know, what we think of is always like those moments with Scarlet or Threat. But then there's all these the scenes with the slaves, mm-hmm. which is what I always come to when I think about this movie. And I'm just thinking, one, this would be a shorter movie if we just didn't address the slave thing. Would it be inaccurate? Sure, but this is already a melodrama. But when I'm watching this, I'm just like, the slaves are usually the comedic relief. Yep. And especially poor Butterfly McQueen, who is a mm-hmm. lovely actress, and she just gets abused. And she literally gets abused. Right. She gets, she gets slapped. And and you feel like in that moment, the camera is with um, Scarlet in that moment. And yeah. Like, yeah. And you're just like, this poor girl. And it's weird to watch a Civil War movie trying to take sides with the wrong side of history. Yes. Which is... On one side, you know, it's a story. It could be told. But then you got all the slavery. And because the movie is so racist and the movie is like one of the biggest of all time, it's cemented in history with such big... It bothers me. Mm-hmm. I think of like... I'm going to make a big comparison here. I don't, I don't even know if it's a comparison, but comparing the situations to think... I think of like birth of a nation because when it came out, it was like huge, not gone with the wind, huge, but freaking huge. I mean, big enough to change the movie industry. Exactly. And I mean, I, in my classes I took with now Oscar winner, Kevin Wilmot, his, anytime we talked about gone or uh, birth of a nation, he said it was like star Wars in that time. So just, you know, it was, I mean, it, was big. it was filmed in the white house. They actually yeah. Woodrow Wilson wanted to see it there. He loved it. He loved the movie. That movie today, we still address its influence, like D.W. Griffith, but it is, it's basically, it's shunned. 
for good reason because of its representation and like glorifying the clan mm -hmm. at what point if ever do we do that for gone with the wind i mean because well, see, it's i think birth of a nation is aggressively racist yeah yeah i agree gone with the wind is your racist uncle at the dinner table yeah <laughs> like, <it's> like <laughs> you still have to love him but you're also like please stop are you yeah. like reading my family right now? <laughs> I feel seen. <laughs> but you're right. Like it, it's it's told from the point of view of like the Confederate side of things, mm -hmm. which was done in movies a lot. But I think especially with this one, you know, you got the scene where it pans up and the last image is the Confederate flag waving in all its glory you know and but so also i've read at this point that civil war pictures weren't as popular as any other like war movie at the time and then this came out and changed all that and probably got so many there you go yeah i mean i can't think of any that are as popular after this which is also weird but it's again it's a civil war movie to end all civil war movies yeah, And even though I, I've even had a history teacher who's like, if you watch it, it's not even about the Civil War because you're not focusing on battles or anything. You're just focusing on this one woman and her struggle to get through it all. Yeah. Sure. I could honestly, I don't think Scarlett gives a shit that there's a war going on. Oh no, she, she only cares about herself. She does. Yeah. Like Everybody else around her could die, but she's like, I guess... I don't know. It's like Melanie's dying. I guess I'll save you. I don't, I don't give a shit. Let's go. Like this story's main purpose, I don't think I have a problem with. Mm -hmm. But it's like its surrounding areas and how it chooses to contextualize itself mm -hmm. is what's the biggest thing. Yeah, you can't discuss it without bringing that up and like making it central to the discussion, I think. But it, I mean, I want to go back to your point. And even if there is an end to the question of when do we look at Gone with the Wind in terms of the racism stuff, the same way we look at Birth of a Nation. And I don't think, I don't mean like the same way. Like I'm not saying shun it completely. Yeah. I feel like Gone with the Wind for the most part is like brought up more often without addressing that. And like still considered among somebody as like one of the best movies of all time. And it is in some regard, you know, I'm but, so happy that Spike Lee started Black Klansman with a clip from Gone with the Wind. Exactly. And he didn't use the the actual like uh, dialogue from it, too. He used fake ones where it's like, oh, God bless the Confederacy. Oh, where's our Confederacy? And then it pans out to like the most famous shot upwards. But still, I mean, it's getting noticed. It made a little bit of money this year at the theater. Because it was re-released. Yeah, my friend told me that she was going to see it at the theater. And her and her friends got there too late because it was sold out. Whoa. So when, it's I, still when I saw it in 2014, this is before reserved seats, I had to sit on the floor, third row, because I got there too late to get a good seat. That's wild. My theater was like, there are maybe 12 of us. No, know. let me tell you, if you get the right city and the right audience, people go hard for Gone with the Wind. They will sit for the four hours in like a crowded ass hot theater to watch it still. Interesting. When I saw The Wizard of Oz this year, there was like six of us. I don't say when I saw Wizard of Oz, it was packed. I must go to like. Did you go to like the, one of the first screenings, though? 
I did. It wasn't the T TCM one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I go to this theater that has their own program. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I did TCM and it was like one of the later ones that they showed, but no, it's, it's, it's amazing that these two wizard of Oz and gone with the wind are still shown in theaters. Like on a rotate on a rotating basis, especially gone with the wind. Cause that baby is like four hours long right? and people stick with it. Yeah. I, I see aside- it twice in theaters. <laughs> Aside from all the racist material, I think my one other big qualm with it was just the the scene that like this the scenes that disinterested me the most were kind of the latter scenes between Scarlet and Rhett, mm-hmm. and that's like the, that's supposed to be like the center of the story, like those two, or at least it yeah. seems that way. And so I was like, that could be a little stronger, or at least I mean, moved a little, it's, little quicker. It's definitely two different stories: the Civil War and then the Reconstruction Era, and the Reconstruction Era is the lesser of the two scenes, obviously. Mm-hmm. But then it all, I mean, I think, I think from the death of Scarlet and Red's daughter past that, spoiler alerts, uh, it's just great acting on the part of Gable and Lee. Yeah. Like when he leaves her and is like, I don't give a damn. And then you have the beautiful shot of him walking through the fog and he's gone. And then she's like, I'll go back to Tara. <laughs> Every time, yeah. I mean, I, I the cinematography in this it, it did it blew me away. I was like, there are a few things that I've seen quite like this. Um, so I mean, it has a lasting impact in that way. And who plays Especially, Scarlet? Who plays Scarlet's father in this? Number three, Thomas Mitchell showing up. Scarlet O'Hara once again. Thanks for bringing that up. I forgot about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there I are a like few things that. Go ahead. I like reading these, what you put these AFI things, because again, like gone with, I mean, like the wizard of Oz, a shit ton. It's number six, the best of 100. It's number two, the greatest passions, which I think is the lowest we've had so far. It has the number one quote of Frank. I don't give a damn. Yeah. The highest. Excuse me. (laughs) Hello is high as whatever. Uh, number 31 quote after all tomorrow's another day, 59 as God is my witness. I'll never be hungry again. The number two film score, number 43 cheers because she gets herself through the war and <laughs> it is the number four greatest epic. Yeah. I will also say I did not bring up that. I do think this film has some of the best costumes in any good film, like probably in my top 10 of all films. And there's a hell of a lot of costumes. I know. Yeah. They just kept pushing them out. Yeah, I would agree. And the the color, like, I think in this year with color being relatively new technology, some of these films are just getting as much out of it as they can. And they're so much better for it. I, and think. I think it's great. Yeah. Like yeah. this and The Wizard of Oz have so much color. It's great. Love have it. we seen, I feel Zay has probably, along with myself, the Carol Burnett version of this yes where i saw it in the window and i couldn't resist yes (laughs) brett do you know what i'm talking about no you gotta look this up please everybody out there look up the carol burnett it's called went with the wind went with the wind it has one of the most iconic television dresses in history yes my friend aaron showed me that it was best thing i've ever seen like i'm pretty sure the costume itself is in the smithsonian I haven't seen this, but I know about it. Now that I see the the actual dress and whatnot. Yeah. Good. Also, to bring up the fact of the creativity of this movie, 
like Wizard of Oz. It's always it's, it's weird how it's like the sisters to the Wizard of Oz in some ways, directed by a lot more people than just Victor Fleming. I Good mean, old friend George George Cukor. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He directed a little bit of it. I mean, I think there was a couple others, but eventually came over to Fleming. And I believe that I think I also read that Vivian Lee um, really enjoyed working with George Cukor. And like when Fleming took over, she was not a fan for the most part. So, but obviously still a tremendous performance. So cool. Anything else on Gone with the Wind before we wrap up? Am I the only one who's read the book? Yeah, I've never read it. Yeah. It's a good book. <laughs> Alrighty. A thousand pages to spare. <laughs> I think I'll read Wuthering Heights first. Yeah, yeah, same. Same. <laughs> There's no costumes in the book. <laughs> this is true. Okay, so I think we've gone over the 10 nominees. Um, we've reached that point, so I think let's go ahead. How would you rank these movies? Anybody want to volunteer start, or I can go first? I shall. Okay. For number 10, we've got Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Number Goodbye. 9, Wuthering Heights. 8, The Bomb, Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> Seven, Love Affair. Six, Of Mice and Men. Five, Dark Victory. Four, Stagecoach. Three, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Two, Ninochka. One, Wizard of Oz. Nice. Wizard okay. of Oz takes the cake. I will go. Number 10, Wuthering Heights. Number 9, Adios, Senor Chips. Number eight, Love Affair. Number seven, Dark Victory. Number six, Of Mice and Men. Five goes to Mr. Smith when he went to Washington. Four is Gone with the Wind. Three is Stagecoach. Two is Nanushka. And number one is The Wizard. And he from Oz. All right. So far, two for two. I'm going to go with number 10, Love Affair. Number nine, Wuthering Heights. Number eight, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Number seven, Of Mice and Men. Number six, Dark Victory. Number five, Gone with the Wind. Number four, Mr. Smith and His Trip to Washington. Number three, Nanachka. Number two, Stagecoach. And number one, once again, The Wizard of Oz. So I think it's safe to say, as we always ask, which picture was best? I think we can all agree that to a degree, I don't know if we want to say the Academy got it wrong, but I think looking back now, I think they should have gone with Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. It was right there. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say this is the first time I've disagreed with the Academy on this show, I think. And I'm so glad it was for this one. Could you imagine if Love Affair won? I'm in pain. <laughs> I'm in pain just at the thought of that. Can I just say that I did a personal awards for myself and I nominated The Wizard of Oz in 20 little 20 nominations. That would 20. be a record. And it has won, in my personal humble opinion, nine of those 20. Awesome. And I'm guessing some of the others went to Gone with the Wind, all those technical categories and whatnot. 
Yeah. Nice. Well, that wraps up this part of the episode. Um, this is a long one, obviously, so this is part one. Be looking out for part two when it's released, where we will cover some other films from 1939. We'll go over our overall top ten of the year. And we'll also get to rattle off some of our own personal nominations and wins once we consider the other movies that came out this year. Anything else on these nominees? That's it. Cool. We will see you then. I'm really especially happy that I'm chosen to present this particular plaque. To me, it seems more than just a plaque of gold. It opens the doors of this room, moves back the walls, and enables us to embrace the whole of America, an America that we love, an America that almost alone in the world today recognizes and pays tribute to those who give their best, regardless of creed, race, or color. It is with the knowledge that this entire nation will stand and salute the presentation of this plaque that I present the Academy Award for the best performance of an actress in supporting roles during 1939 to Hattie McDaniel. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you. And God bless you.